this is D.L. Hudson. Welcome to Church and Culture. This show is devoted to exploring the interaction between our faith and our culture. Each week, I will talk with expert guests on topics ranging from literature, art, and music to politics, liturgy, spirituality, and education. Thank you for joining us. I have asked Professor Lee Osser of the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Mass, to come back on Church and Culture to talk to him about a very specific topic. But before I do that, let me remind you that Dr. Osser came out of New York City, attended high school on Long Island, played in rock bands, and worked odd jobs in Portland before getting his B.A. from Reed College and his Ph.D. from Yale in English. He's known worldwide as a authority on T.S. Eliot and now on Shakespeare because we did a number of shows on his wonderful book on Shakespeare entitled On Christian Humanism and Shakespeare, a study in religion and literature. Lee, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back, Deal. Good to be here. I want to ask you about the way we periodize cultural and intellectual literary history. I know that over the years we've all gotten used to talking about the ancient world, the medieval world, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, Romanticism, Modernism, and now postmodernism. But and I think those are very useful ways to approaching a general a general education in terms of being able to say, compare the philosophy, theology, and the literature of the Renaissance with, say, that same in the Middle Ages, whether it's late or early Middle Ages, or Roman or Greek antiquity. But I found that not enough people appreciate the difference between what happened when we leapt from the modern to the postmodern, that, at least in my view, that's a pretty tragic leap and I want to know what you think about that. My thoughts about the term postmodern are skeptical. You have to distinguish between really compelling cultural history on the one hand and academic fabrication on the other hand. It's not always easy to do. Uh, C.S. Lewis was skeptical about the existence of the Renaissance. He felt right. that the whole idea of the Renaissance was overblown. And uh, and in some sense, he, he made important strides in insisting on the medieval foundations of, of the Renaissance as we understand it. So these periods are blurry and difficult, and uh, Lewis commanded the attention of, of his readers by making a compelling case for the importance of the Middle Ages in the literature in England of the 16th century. Uh, so you have then the medieval uh, past uh, impressing the work of Spencer, impressing the work of Shakespeare, and there's a lot to be said for that. Now, with respect to postmodern, my greatest concern is that uh, this term has largely been used in the service of academics who uh, thrive through neologisms, you know, coining new words, creating a kind of artificial currency, and uh, and then sort of passing that on to their students who can then give the artificial currency more life. But these, uh, these fabrications, as I'm calling them, don't hold up very well the problem with the term the term postmodernism is the movement is really indistinguishable from everything that hap- interesting that happened in modernism. And then, of course, you have uh, substantial critics like Harold Bloom who are not happy with the notion that modernism should be categorically separated from Romanticism. Mm. Now, uh, I think. You know, over time, things play out pragmatically. We find the term Renaissance has real value in conversation, that something did happen 
Uh, and we can we can defend that case historically. I think you know I could I could certainly go down that road right now. Uh, and I think that in terms of modernism, something real happened. That there are, there's a series of essays and a series of writers who reevaluated things and made things new. I'm not sure that we have that with postmodernism. Writers, the poets who are sometimes said to re- represent that, whether it's Elizabeth Bishop or Robert Lowell or John Ashbery, they certainly seem to me to be late modernists, and there doesn't seem to be any definitive break between them and the modernism that precedes them. And then one last point about postmodernism is I don't think it's having the term is having any particular longevity right now. Um, with, with the new um, uh, success of cultural studies and identity politics, folks are not very interested in these finer distinctions of intellectual and cultural history. So the, the, the postmodernists seem to be fading from view and giving way to people who are just really up in arms about politics. Well, let me try this on you. you you're an Elliot specialist, and I guess Elliot, as much as anybody, at least to me, represents what I think when we talk about modernism and poetry. Is that fair to say? Sure. I would agree okay. with that. Um, I know that uh, I, of course, I find postmodern points of view disgraceful and intellectually dishonest. I see, however, there is value in the word, and let me tell you why. Sure. seems to me the difference between a Eliot, on the one hand, and a Derrida, or any of the literary people who became uh, influenced by Derrida, that the difference is this, that, that uh, Eliot wanted to put things together, things that were broken apart. He wanted a unified view of the world. He he believed the world was unified and that it could be sort of rediscovered and revisioned and reimagined through poetry, I, th- I believe. Whereas postmodernist our point of view is that's an illusory project, that there's no whole wholeness to the world. There's no unified field. There's no shared truth. And... All, all knowledge is really a product of power relationships that ha- are ongoing during certain periods of history and certain geographical places. So truth is out. Obviously, truth in morality of the good is out. Uh, and beauty is no longer the uh, reigning value of art it becomes political because it's about power. So I have found that the difference between the modern and the post... That was my son making a dramatic entrance with a cup of coffee. Thank you. Uh, that the two is... The two is a, there's a real, as Lessing would put it, a real a ditch between the, uh, the modern and the postmodern. What do you think? Well, so when you say uh, postmodernism, and we talk about power, I think of uh, Foucault. When we think, talk about Derrida, the main game I think about is presence and absence. And so for, and by the way, these two thinkers, there's plenty to overlap. There's plenty, yes. to, you know, common ground between them. But so with an Augustinian view of language, there is the presence of truth in the word. In the Christian view of language, the logos is, pre- <coughs> me, is present in language. So language has a significant truth function to it. In Derridian thinking, language is marked by the absence of the real presence of truth. There's, the, the presence is illusory and mythological and kind of anthropological. Uh, now, Eliot, we have to distinguish Eliot uh, uh, according to pre- and post-conversion. In 1927, he's received into the Church of England, and at that point, uh, he becomes definitively Christian, 
their adumbrations of his Christian position earlier on, but I think the best work done on his early work suggests that he's he's practicing what philosophers would call a kind of linguistic idealism. It's it's a kind of literary pragmatism. The uh, the the, there's no insistence on the connection between words and reality. There's no insistence on the connection between words and things, uh, such as you would have in, in, in a more platonic thinker like, like Augustine. Uh, so Eliot falls back on fiction. And I've just been teaching his most famous essay this past week. It's called Tradition and the Individual Talent. It was written in 1919. Right. It's a marvelous essay. But this whole uh, uh, fiction he puts forward about an ideal order of existing literary monuments, that is what Wallace Stevens would call a supreme fiction. It's just there's that ideal order is not based in reality, in a kind of platonic reality. Instead, it's just a sort of wonderful fabrication by this journalist, poet, critic, uh, Tom Elliott. And I think we don't get the kind of uh, undergirding that we want, the metaphysical and realistic undergirding we want, until he is received into the church. So you could even say, taking minor point of view, he moved, he began as a postmodernist and moved into modernism. Yeah. <clears throat> That's kind of funny, but yeah, I can see that. And of course, Stevens, I mean, he, he is a postmodernist if you want to apply the criterion I described. Well, uh, um. Because yeah, you think no, the I, idea I of order at Key West, yeah. which is what you're referring yeah. to, and uh, he ex he captured as a poet, he captured translucent moments in time, but he didn't, as far as I can tell, make any attempt to bind them together, let's say the way a romantic figure like Novalis or uh, Wordsworth, Wordsworth would have yeah. done. I, I hesitate to say too much about Stevens. Um, I admire him a great deal. He did convert to Catholicism on his deathbed, apparently. After it, beating up Hemingway. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a, a very curious line of poetry behind him, particularly, particularly the uh, French symbolists. And the French symbolists are kind of difficult to explain the one thing I will say in their defense is they were interested in achieving a kind of platonic vision. Uh, well, I think I think Baudelaire certainly yeah. was, no question. Yeah, right. And Christian yeah, right. Platonism. Yeah, uh, and, and when we talk about the French symbolism, which gets into Eliot, is in the early Eliot as well. Um, we talk about a, a, the poet's obsession with musicality with le rêve, that's the French word for the dream, for dreaminess, and a kind of incantatory power that is about something. You know, there's, there, the, these French symbolists are trying to take you, they're trying to transfigure your consciousness is really what they're trying to do. Well, that's um, what I'm saying yeah. that modernism is, or I'm saying that's what, that's what I un always understood modernism to be, which, but, yes, but the there are breaks, there are breaks with the tradition, but they are also contain within within that break a desire to be reunited okay all right there, there you go yeah uh, so so whereas Mallarmé wants presence Derrida does not believe in the presence he says it's not it's not there to reclaim right right so I mean the the postmodern becomes is is by definition nihilistic, and also therefore leaves relations uh, uh, a matter of power relations. I mean, if there is no truth, it's just up to the. You can't appeal pub, to public rationality and standards of reason when there are no standards of reason, and therefore you just wait for the next tyranny to come down the street. Right. So then, Deal, do you characterize Nietzsche as a uh, as a, a postmodernist? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was the first in the history of philosophy that who really 
I mean, everybody talks about him talking about the death of God. It was really the death of metaphysics. And it was the death of unif- any kind of public, unifying, communal uh, reality that people share. And what he did, however, summon up was an idea of a virtuous, individual virtuous response to that reality. So he, the only kind of shared value that he preached was that of uh, endurance and overcoming. And he could be a very shrewd psychologist. Oh, very, especially when it came to religion. Yeah. So, you know, to come back to our original framework and trying to put intellectual and cultural history into some kind of perspective and to divide periods and give them names... It really gets tricky it, starting in the 19th century. You get <clears throat> this figure, uh, Nietzsche, who adumbrates so much that, that comes in the 20th and in the 21st century and is, of course, massively popular among the intellectuals. Uh, but I think there's even a question in Eliot Gray, as he is, about his relationship to the past. In other words, we're crediting him, especially the Christian Eliot, for trying to recover the tradition to make it new. But there is something in Eliot's writing of pastiche. There's something in Eliot's writing of parody, uh, a satirical attitude toward the past. I, and I do think he's capable of high seriousness, and he insists on it himself. And yet uh, a lot of people read the early Eliot as a light verse writer, uh, uh, and then I think about the history of painting, and we go back to France in the 19th century again, and I think about the figure of Manet. And Manet, mid-century, has already got this kind of parody sensibility, paradistic is a word you might use. In some of his great paintings, you just really wonder, what does he mean? Is he trying to make something new? Is he trying to to look at the, the beauty of, of a young woman with fresh eyes, or is he saying it's impossible to do this in a new way? Well, I think painting is another good example of the, uh, the, the difficulty of pinpointing when there may have been a period change. I mean, period right. changes are all constructs of people like us. Yes. But we also do it in order to help educate ourselves, uh, have an overview, and help others to have an overview. But in the, so you like you say, time. in the case of Manet, the kind of thing you see in, later on in Picasso and in Kandinsky and down the road, has, is already starting to happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. So... I, I, and you could, you could, and, and to century. extend that, Lee, you could talk about the composer Debussy, Claude Debussy, because right. his uh, early early compositions in this, and he was a contemporary of Manet. Uh, Do you, are I ex- that? extremely uh, stretching even the modernist impulse. I mean, there are times when he's when Debussy. Unlike Ravel, who never really uh, escapes from Romanticism, uh, I mean, Debussy is very much someone who wants to explore silence. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that assessment. And uh, you also have uh, the strange figure of Satie in there, oh, I love who's, Satie. who's really being very atonal in some of the. Da dee da 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 dee da da da. Right. Yeah. Well, that's him at his most romantic and lovely, but Satie has so many strange things also. Oh, yes, but, you know, he was a believing man, though. Is that is that right? I, he yeah. seems to be experimenting with Gnosticism. He calls, he, he names some of those compositions, piano pieces, after Gnosticism in the sense of secret Gnostic knowledge. So I, I don't know as much about his life as you do. Well, you know, but the I'm, thing about he was a dandy, he was a dandy after the time of the dandy had passed. I mean, Baudelaire, Flaubert all lived at the heyday of the Parisian dandy in the mid-19th century. And 
sati like Cocteau. The flaneur. Yeah, the flaneur, the observer. And uh, yeah. they, uh, like Cocteau, they, they wanted to make their life a work of art. I mean, their appearance a work of art. And I think, in the case of Cocteau, certainly uh, succeeded. And uh, this is why, but then... For someone who, as Jacques Maritain pointed out, who was a friend with both Satie and uh, Cocteau, very very close to Cocteau, uh, anyone who goes all out for beauty is going to end up with the God question placed right in front of them. They can't avoid yeah. it. Yeah. And of no, course, uh, you know, that's what, isn't that what separates them from a dairy Dian or a Foucaultian? In other words... They're they're never going to face the God question because they never allow anything to take you know to release themselves from their own individual point of view. I love that. I think that's right. That in, in other words, when you're confronted with with beauty or truth or goodness that is larger than yourself, your individual point of view. Either uh, is, is, is challenged or disintegrates, or you have to rethink things, or you meditate and uh, get outside of your own head a little bit. But I think you know when I consider the lives of Derrida and Foucault and Paul Demand and some of these other figures of deconstruction and post. Well, even J. Hillis Miller, after writing one of the best books on Romanticism there is, he went off the deep end. <laughs> It, it, it does seem to uh, to touch on a titanic egotism, right? Yeah. Where you, you, you seem to be a, unable to have that experience of something that is larger than yourself. You always have to control what it is uh, you're looking at. So, uh, you know, Foucault's reading of uh, Velasquez's uh, Las Meninas is he, he just kind of takes over the painting. He refuses to submit to the mystery of the painting. Yeah. So, and in that way, he's weirdly, they're weirdly positivistic. You know, they're more, they're in keeping with that spirit of scientism, which, which just, as, to quote Wordsworth, murders to dissect. It does. And, but, but going back to you, you expressed, if not your own, but people's skepticism about the periodization project at all. I, I have found that to be a structure upon which I have pursued my education my whole life. Very much aware, for example, of, you know, how can you distinguish the Enlightenment from modernism? Very difficult, I think. Uh, how, how can you dis- really distinguish, uh, romanticism from the modern, as, as, as you pointed out that Bloom did? Or even when can you find the beginning point of any of these projects? Because, if you go back and pick, say, a mod, you know, the beginning of the modern, whether it's in Spinoza or Pierre Bale or someone like that, you're a, you're a, you're really basically uh, identifying it with the beginning of the Enlightenment. So does the Enlightenment become a, a sort of subclass of the modern, along with the modern itself? Am I am I? Getting too theoretical. Go ahead. Well, <clears throat> you know, in in the 18th century, you do, of course, uh, encounter hard materialist atheism. Right. And uh, I'm not sure that you have that kind of thing in Shakespeare's day. Um, <clears throat> to be an atheist was not quite uh, this the view that develops um, in the 18th century. Which is just starker and much more like our own. But there's also the is it there also the need to distinguish between national cultures at that point? Well, you know the the national project is um, very complicated. I I mean, I want to let me let's get to the national project in in a moment. But I do want to say that in terms of distinguishing these periods. We do get the occasional very strong piece of writing. Um, philosophy kind of reemerges out of the, uh, the, the, the early Renaissance, late Middle Ages. You don't have great philosophers for a time, and then suddenly in the 17th century, 
you've got them, and you've yeah. got them in the 18th century. So, and you can, we can, you know, we can read uh, 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 Leibniz and Spinoza, and we can read Kant, and we can see that something has happened to go over to literature. Tradition and the individual ta- talent is is a is different. Something new is happening there. Likewise, with Wordsworth's preface to lyrical ballads in 1800, he announces himself, and he has the power, as did Eliot, to create his own audience. So when we see these seminal original figures creating a new taste, a new interest, a new line of thought, then I think we're wise to uh, recognize a sea change. Uh, it's just that um, <clears throat> the last couple hundred years, well, we have a, we can look at it with a very fine-grained lens, and people are all over the place. Now, now you you cut, we mentioned Nietzsche. We said there's a sense in which he's closer to Derrida and Foucault. Um, I and then we were going to talk about the nationalist project. I think in someone like Whitman, that gets fairly metaphysical. You know, it, and yeah, it goes back to that pantheism that's. That romantic, a lot of romanticists yeah. finally sort of settled there. Yeah, or they adopt something from Hegel. Uh, uh, so we're and we're still all over the place. I mean, uh, um, for those of us who are Catholic intellectuals, we're not really the intellectual uh, um, sort of company of the, the the sort of utter skeptics who are who never examine their philosophical position. Who just assume the truth of a kind of stupid material? Certainly are not. I mean, I, yeah, what, what, what do we have to do with them? So, uh, you know, Hobbes is another, by the way. Well, Hobbes is definitely, you know, with Hobbes, yeah. when you have him say, you know, basically reject metaphysics and define yeah. happiness as being found in the pursuit rather than in the uh, destination, you have a big leap forward in terms of something being radically new in our culture. We're going to take a short break. I'm talking with Professor Leoser of Holy Cross about just how do we stack up these periods in our own Western tradition, and are they helpful or are they not? We'll be right back. with Professor Lee Oser of Holy Cross, and you remember that uh, Lee was on a, a series of shows about his book on Christian humanism in Shakespeare, and we had a great time going through the chapters and discussing the various plays that he dealt with in his book. And now I'm, I sort of ask him to come on and, and talk about whether or not these periods that we put, and I'm thinking in a general that it's not just an academic habit. I think it's an ac- a habit of people in general who have gone through periods of reflection about about our history, not just our politics, but our literature, our art, and our music. That we go from ancient, whether that's Roman or Greek, to medieval, and of course we distinguish between early, which is called the Dark Ages, which I used to expel students for saying that. High Middle Ages, Late Middle Ages, Early Renaissance, Renaissance, the Renaissance in different parts of Europe, and of course in England, and then the Enlightenment and Modernism, uh, Romanticism after Enlightenment, then Modernism and Postmodernism. By the way, Lee, I wrote my dissertation on Romanticism and anti-Romanticism, and the anti-Romanticism of Baudelaire, Nietzsche, and Kierkegaard. And so you might say that my dissertation itself was premised on the fact that there was such a thing as Romanticism and that it could be critiqued uh, as it was, I mean, and that's what that's sort of I see. I so I have a prior commitment to this way of looking at our at our history. Well, I I agree with you that we have to uh, 
make classifications and we have to generalize. We can't think unless we generalize. So I find some of these terms to be very helpful myself. Um, you and I looked at postmodernism a little differently, but I certainly see your point about the likes of uh, Foucault and Derrida. Now, I think it was, uh, it might have been Sartre, not that I'm a fan of Jean-Paul Sartre, but it might no, have well, been nobody Sartre. Is. Yeah, who said that um, he, behind every theory there's a veiled autobiography, you know? So it is curious to consider how these the, 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 the personal temperaments of great men uh, um and how that personal temperament enters into the kind of thinking that goes on and the kind of theories that are advanced so that you have to think that Hegel's philosophy is in some sense an expression of Hegel's personality. Uh, um, and and I, I, I think that's right. So that's just another, another complication that we have to be able to distinguish what is, what is idiosyncratic in the thinking of a genius and what is local to that person's experiences and, and culture? Certainly, we can we can in a lot of ways we can reduce content to Lutheranism, if we like, and uh, and at the same time we have to keep our eyes on the way these geniuses interact with each other. Sometimes I think of uh, intellectual history, philosophical history, as just a giant chessboard, and a master comes along and makes a move. <laughs> Good and then point. the next master comes along and figures out where the game is and makes a move. So you got and the idealist I, yeah. piece versus the the Platonic yeah. piece versus the Aristomus piece and so forth. That's interesting. That's a great idea, by the way. Well, it's kind it's kind of fun. So um, any anyway, I'll, I'll I'll leave it I'll, I'll leave it at, at that with with my chessboard. Maybe I'll add this one other point. That I do believe that something we deal with when we're discussing the great works of the past and the great periods of the past, it's not only these, these geniuses with their personalities, but I'm one of those who subscribes to the idea that genius is real, that there are people, men and women, who are just unusually gifted, and in some sense, they are freaks. They're freaks in the sense that they're, they're just stuck with this very, very high intelligence. And so they see farther and deeper than the rest of us. So in that respect, I think that our intellectual and cultural history actually has a kind of grounding in nature and in the experience of biology. Now, that's an unpopular theory in some quarters, particularly, I think, in the postmodern academy. But I, I think that's right. I think that you have people like Kant and Hegel who just have very, very unusual brain power. Oh, they did, along with Schelling and the and Fichte and Goethe and that whole crowd. But, you know, what I, I want to ask you specific about a specific work, and that's Cervantes' Don Quixote, which was written right at the end of Shakespeare's life, or right after he died. I don't remember exactly, but it's very close. Now, when I read Don Quixote, I am I feel like I am reading something that is completely new in the West. You have this self-conscious novel that is parodying all you know the values of the chivalric values of the Middle Ages, but at the same time admiring them, doing this simultaneously. And at the same time, showing this this uh, figure of the, the man of La Mancha, of Don Quixote, as ridiculous, but also ridiculous in a way that he's kind of a holy fool. Uh, can you talk a little bit about where how you see Don, that novel, Don Quixote, fitting into our cultural history and perhaps even impacting our notion of periodization? Well, uh, a couple of things. I think that if you want to look at, uh, at presidents for Cervantes, for, for the influences upon him, very large is the figure of Erasmus. And it's really uh, Erasmus's phrase of folly, which uh, is around 1500, 1510, 1515, 
where you that's a have, that's a century that's a century ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that book, Erasmus was huge in Spain, and that is the book that really inspired uh, Shakespeare's idea of of the fool who is capable of wisdom. You think of a figure like Bottom in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Bottom is a very Erasmian figure, and it's Erasmus who notices the duality of the fool, that the fool can be, in a negative sense, someone who uh, is vain, who lies to himself and to others, uh, who has a bad sense of what's important. So a fool can be that. But a fool can also be a fool for Christ, a fool who who uh, is misunderstood by most of us because we don't understand that fool's vision. And this, this fool could be... Uh, um, Quixote, uh, 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 this fool could be a lover, and this is the kind of higher fooling that uh, Erasmus gets at in the final pages of The Praise of Folly. And yet, at the same time, I agree with you. It's, it's, it's uh, shockingly self-aware as, as narrative. It's hilariously critical of the whole chivalric ethos, which is, of course, is simply going out of fashion. So um, maybe a work that straddles the old and the new. I find I had to go back and reread it a couple of times for a book I was writing, and I was just again. We read some of these books way too early in life. Do you agree? <laughs> I'll be rereading uh, Cervantes, by the way, because I have a student who's insisting on write, writing about it. And I have not, I have not read it in a good long while. Well, I, I'll be interested in how you feel about it because I was, I just thought, oh, good book, I'll enjoy it. But I, ended, my head ended up spinning off because it was so uh, far, it was so prophetic. But yet, it's not just prophetic; it was so on the money when it came to the weaknesses of the hypocrisies of medieval Christian uh, chivalry. Yeah, it's it's you know it's an interesting thing how complicated uh, some of these Christian writers can be. Uh, so when, when I'll be looking hard at uh, Cervantes and his relationship to Christian humanism, his uses of Erasmus, and uh, you know there's an assumption on the part of some thinkers, some contemporary intellectuals, that Christians have a sort of necessarily monolithic view of the intellectual past, um, but. You know, early on, Christians are engaged in all kinds of point and counterpoint. Aquinas is wonderfully complicated. He has incredibly intense disagreements with his contemporaries, and then Scotus comes along and takes a very different point of view. So the, the, the Christian past is itself. And you also, you know, this was the moment when, when Christian intellectuals were dialoguing with Muslims, and Cervantes yeah. himself was held, held prisoner, I think, for eight or ten years by some... Muslim North African, uh, I don't know, I guess they were pirates. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he, he, you've, got, uh, you've got a lot of interest in, uh, in the Golden Age, right? In, um, in, so, because Cervantes is connected to the Golden Age in Spanish literature, it's, it's a, in, yes. in Spanish art. El Siglio Doro, as they call it. Yeah, yeah. That, that phrase, by the way, is in bad odor among many academics these days because it's associated with a kind of nefarious nationalistic project. Oh, gosh. So we're not... We're, oh. I, so we're not if, you, if, you listen, if you listen for any period of time to the three great Spanish Catholic composers of that day, Tomas Luis de Victoria uh, or Guillermo or uh, one other that I can't remember right now, I mean, there is something there that is just blowing the roof off in terms of its incredible beauty. Uh, and they were doing in Spain what Palestrina was doing in Italy at the same time. And then you have, you add this, you add the exploration, right? I mean, Spain and Portugal are opening up the whole world to Europe. Yeah, and it's all checkered. It's a very checkered history, and that's what we have to confront. That's what we have to deal with. But that's always the way it was, you know. Um, I think if we go back to gospel times, we recognize a world that was chaotic, 
dangerous, uh, uh, far from united, despite the efforts of the Romans. Many different points of views, even our gospel writers seem to have different personalities and different points of views. Uh, and so we are left with the task of of um, synthesizing, of, of, of selecting and synthesizing and putting things together and trying to recognize and understand reality. And that's, that's a wonderful th- thing we humanists can do. It's something scientists can try to do. If we can manage to bring together science and uh, humanism, then we really have a kind of unified uh, view, a unified field of knowledge that's very, very hard to achieve. But we can't, I agree with you, we cannot simply to surrender, surrender to a world of fragments because uh, that's just not going to work for us. Well, and another thing that is sometimes very hard to do is to ask, as a Catholic intellectual and professor and writer, just when we start using periodization, how does the Catholic, its own development, figure into it? I mean, how is it well, yeah. part of that? Newman is a, is a central figure here, and Newman is simply, now I, I revere it, I am a Newman lover, yeah. and I think, by the way, that Newman has a strong bearing on uh, tradition and the individual talent. I think Newman is uncredited oh, really? by the Eliot. Yeah, yeah, I think, well, Eliot was teaching Newman and, oh, okay. and, and reading him, yeah. Um, so Newman is an important figure for Eliot, who comes from a, a very... Uh, churchy family, by the way, all kinds of Protestant preachers on both sides. Um, so, the, But the thing with Newman that is difficult for folks today, um, and I think also for, for Catholics, it's a challenge for Catholics today, is in his lectures on, on literature, he's, he is extremely Eurocentric, I mean, intensely Eurocentric, Eliot is Eurocentric in the tradition, in tradition and the individual talent. He speaks about the mind of Europe. Uh, that kind of thinking is not often welcome among uh, the literata today who are looking for connections between cultures and are very reluctant to accept the superiority of European civilization. Am I reluctant to accept the, the, the superiority of European civilization? Not so much. I'm, I, I tend to be a fan of the West, but well, we, as, uh, when we go back to Newman, we're really confronted by a strong... Yeah, as as one of your Yale professors wrote, hold on hard to huckleberry bushes. That's what you do as a, as a close reader of texts. Yeah, yeah. And, by the way, the, the other composer was Cristobal de Morales, along with Vittoria and Guillermo. Oh, yeah, de Morales. Oh, God, yeah. there it uh, So, with Newman, you have somebody who's sort of taken up the challenge that I just mentioned, and that is when this, in his book, The History of Development of Doctrine. Is that what it's called? Yeah. I mean, how that book seems to me to be sort of the answer to my question, that is, can... Can Catholicism, can the Church itself be tracked in this way that we're talking about? Well, that yes, Newman is, I think, the great uh, historical consciousness uh, among the, the Catholics after the Enlightenment. He seems to be the first great thinker to have, great Catholic thinker to have absorbed the Enlightenment. And yes, the, uh, the, the essay on the development of doctrine that you're referring to, is uh, puts the uh, history of the councils, for instance, in a historical perspective, talks in an organic way about the development of doctrine, which does not at all lend itself to relativism. It's not that in the least. Uh, but that, And that's also consistent with his view of literature. There's parallels between his essays on literature and his uh, essay on the development of doctrine. And the uh, he sees in the development of the church something that actually attests to the truth of its faith that in it that yes. in its development yep. there's something that actually corroborates our faith because of this of the choices the church makes as it goes along they they in other words they adhere in a way that is how shall i put it uh 
not just inspiring, but uh, reconfirming of the faith. Yes. So it's it, it's historically and intellectually and structurally anchored, and uh, of course we like that because um, we are not um, radical Protestants. Now I've got I got a question I want to lay on you, and you can you can tell me to you know shove it. <laughs> Talk a little. Who, if you were to say, here is a Catholic figure in the age of Romanticism, who would you choose? Well, um, who is know, the romantic Catholic, the, the Catholic romanticist? Well, you, you end up. So you're talking about England or France because you end up in France, um, either, with, either with Chateaubriand. You know? Yeah, in, in uh, France it's Chateaubriand, but nobody cares about Chateaubriand. Um, Do they? Uh, the well, I don't know. I hear it mentioned on occasion. Yeah. The the among the English, you have um, it's still. I mean, Alexander Pope in the 18th century, of course, was a Catholic. Um, you have Protestantism with Wordsworth and, and Coleridge, but it becomes a good, strong faith, and their faith becomes inspiration for the Oxford movement uh, later in the 19th century. And, of course, the Oxford movement leads us to, the, uh, to Newman crossing the Tiber. Well, you have, uh, but, you have, uh, yeah. you have Chateaubriand in France, but you have the, all these conversions to Catholicism among the German romanticists like Novalis and there were others uh, because of the idealism the the idea of the mystical reality seems to encourage it but that wasn't so much the case in England during the 19th it's still more under the veil of empiricism and scientism than say in Germany well I think I think so now, I'm one of those Catholic guys who's happy to appreciate a great Protestant author. And <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I love Wordsworth, and I love Coleridge. Now, Coleridge had some of that old anti-Roman uh, sensibility, yeah. unfortunately. He did. But those, those guys, uh, Wordsworth is born in 1770, Coleridge, I think, in 72. They uh, are living at a time in England... When, as I think it was Paul Johnson, the late great Paul Johnson, wrote, the, the the flame of faith was burning low, and that's the way it was. It was that was the deistic century, the 18th century in England, because the the 18th century in England they weren't quite as radical as the French. You know, we're not talking Diderot, but we are talking uh, uh, Newton and and, uh, and and Locke, and eventually people like William Paley and and. Uh, a deistic, a deistic view. So, not very inspiring, not emotionally rich. And then you have this great emotional hunger on the part of Wordsworth and Coleridge, who are experiencing the self in a new way, right? The ancien regime has fallen, all the feudal arrangements have gone. You've got this, the rights of man and the rights of woman. You've got this new idea of the self. But they discover that the self absolutely needs spiritual resources, and that's their yes. great discovery. Yeah, yeah, and so, yeah, and so that's where they start. You think of uh, um, Coleridge out there, alone, alone, alone on a wide, wide sea, uh, experiencing that terrible, alienating isolation, and needing to get back to God. And then Wordsworth, there is a blessing in this gentle breeze, and writing about the spirit in the woods, and imagining himself and Coleridge as priests of nature. Uh, he matures into a pretty serious. Uh, I think he does. I agree with man. you. Yeah. The, the Mount yeah. Snowden experience yeah. is, is gorgeous. Yeah. Well, that you like that because it's closer to German idealism. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was Coleridge that translated all that German idealism, <laughs> and along with George Eliot, the you know the Victorian, the she not Victorian, but uh, the she translated Feuerbach. She translated Hegel. And uh, so there was some of that German idealist influence in England in the mid 19th century, and uh, right, the right. which is at, which is after because Coleridge dies in 1850. Yeah. yeah, 
Uh, Lee, we have just a few minutes to to wrap up, but tell us, catch us up on what you're doing, what you're writing about, what you're going to be speaking on in the next coming in 2023. Give us a little update on you. Well, thank you for that. Oh, I should have said Wordsworth, guys, in 1850. Um, okay. my, I've got a new piece coming out. We're having a very fun uh, forum over at Law and Liberty, which is a great online uh, website, magazine, a great forum. I recommend it to everyone, especially political junkies will like it, but the editors do have their cultural interests, and we've got a very good forum going that was kicked off by the filmmaker Adam Simon, and, uh, and I have a response to that where I talk about... Uh, Catholicism in the arts, so that's a, that's a forthcoming piece, and then some work on uh, C.S. Lewis and Christian humanism. A question was C.S. Lewis a Christian humanist, and I have a piece on that that I'll be just finishing up, and uh, hopefully publishing towards the end of the year. Well, I, we have to talk about the piece on the arts and the piece on C.S. Lewis uh, on this like show. Fun. On this show, the. Uh, Lee, I still, by the way, am feeling the impact of your wonderful novel that we discussed a few weeks ago on this show. Remind people about that and where they can get it. I mean, this is, to me, you achieve what we want a Catholic writer to achieve in the realm of the novel. You met, you wrote a real novel that is a real, really enjoyable, beautifully written, but has an impact on the areas of the heart and the soul that we expect a great piece of writing to have. Well, it's lovely of you to say that. Thank you. Um, the novel is called Old Enemies, a Satire, and you can pick up a copy at Amazon or uh, Barnes & Noble. And if you pick up a copy and you like it, I'd be very grateful if you could leave a review. So thank you for that. Yes, yeah. That, I'm sure our people know, are familiar with Amazon enough to know that down at the bottom you leave reviews, as I did about old enemies. So, uh, Professor Lee Oser, thank you for being on Church and Culture again. Very generous with your time. My pleasure. Great to talk to you, Bill. Take care. And to you listening, we'll be back in a moment with another excellent guest. Mm-hmm.